Guten Tag, friends. This is Gert Frobe. Yes, you might remember me from last week, from the film Goldfinger. Yes, I was in that. I was very good in that. But they dubbed my voice. They dubbed my voice. I don't know why they dubbed my voice. Do you know why they dubbed my voice? We Germans are forgiving people. They should not have dubbed my voice. Listen. But they did. Stop it. You Listen. will shut up. Gert, Gert. Shut up. Gert. I have no idea why they dubbed your voice. Oh, Sean. I did not know it was you. I would not have been so hot had I known it was you, but you're you still standing behind me. We had some good times, Gert. We had very good times on this movie, but you have to understand, Sean. My voice was stopped, and it was an embarrassment back home. But remember the time when we double-stuffed on a black man? Well, it was a good time, Jerry. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder, Gert. You continue. But the point is, these two Canadian boys, uh, the podcasters, I understand, and... I don't approve of this podcast because they are doing about British movies. Once there are no good British movies other than Goldfinger. They should be doing German movies. Good old-fashioned German movies. The Triumph of the Will and Olympia. Like Those them. are good, solid German movies. But I don't approve of this podcast. And I don't know why I'm here. So I'm going to leave. And good luck, you swine hunt. Um, I'm not quite sure what just happened. He was very hot. Did, why was Sean Connery just show up? I don't know. Why we didn't invite him even, and he just came. I don't <laughs> know how he found the place. I mean, him and Gert are uh, pen pals, I think. Yeah, no, they still write to each other. Yeah. They've been writing for a long time. Dearest Sean Connery, Gert. I think, does most of the writing these days. <laughs> Sean Connery, not a lot on his plate. <laughs> not a lot on his plate. Jason. Brendan. We just introduced each other that way. See, that was a quick, effective way to get to the introduction. It's kind of our thing. Now it's longer because I'm talking about it. Yeah. But this is a podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss films of a British nature. Yeah. Specifically. Those that were placed on a list by the British Film Institute in 1999. Yes. The top 100 British films. Yes. Of all time. British time. British time. So. GMT, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So this week we are talking about number 44 on the list, Black Narcissus. But before we get to that, we should talk about last week. And what a week it was. A week in sports. That's right. <laughs> Except the sports of James Bond sports. Yes. Sports sports. The sport of uh, finding a good lass to lay by your side. That's right. And James Bond is at the top of his game in this film. Jason, we talked about Goldfinger last week. We did. It's a big, big movie on this mm. list. Number, movie. Se- number 70, though. Yeah. Like, right on the list. A little low. I asked people if this was the best Bond, if this is the best Bond portrayal, mm-hmm. and if not, to kind of name who th- what they think as uh, the best Bond movie's best Bond Fair portrayal. Enough. So David Lee is the first person here. He says, I'm not sure if it's the best, but it's the first that established the best of Bond. So that's that's where we're starting off here. Ref. It did lay down the formula, uh, as it were. Yeah, for sure. Like we, I think we even pointed that out in the episode. We it did. was very like opening thing that has nothing to do with the movie, theme song, movie, blah blah. blah. Then the movie happens, and then the movie ends, and credits roll, and that's the formula. The, it is it is taken from theaters, put onto some sort of video cassette, mm-hmm. laser disc. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's the only thing I buy. <laughs> uh. 
Joe Reinwald says, I still think Skyfall is the best Bond if you take out all the nostalgia. Uh, I mean, that's a good argument. Skyfall is a good movie. I think there are better Bond movies than Skyfall, but it's a, it was entertaining as hell, that one. What does Jack Patterson say? Jack Patterson says, yes. Pussy galore scene aside, it's tightly paced, memorable, and hits every note of the formula at its peak. Best villain, best henchman, best Bond woman, best name for a Bond woman, best title song, best entrances, best finale, best Bond. Putting it this way, I saw Casino Royale before I saw this one, and this movie is the reason I became a Bond fan, which led me to becoming a movie fan. So, I'm a bit biased. I'm assuming uh, the 1967 Casino Royale is what he's referring yes, to. Yes, the, the Woody Allen-David Niven joint. <laughs> yeah, that's the best one. That's mm, the only mm. Casino Royale. Hashtag, release the Woody Allen cut. I go back further. I'm a fan of Jimmy Bond, CIA agent Jimmy Bond in the TV version of Casino Royale. You're a monster. <laughs> You're a straight-up monster. Uh, what about Brandon Trammell? I'm assuming uh, Catherine's husband. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Brandon says, Speaking as someone who came up in the Roger Moore era, I'm going to have to go with For Your Eyes Only. Hashtag hot take. Well, I mean, as far as... Uh, I don't remember much about For Your Eyes Only, but that was definitely one of the earlier Roger Moores. Mm. Um, was the that hot the take one? as far as I'm concerned. Is that the one? Hashtag mm-hmm. fuck Roger Moore. <laughs> wait, wait. Is, is, is For Your Eyes Only, is that the one that's like the best of Bond? It's like where he... It's the one where he's skiing down the hill and he like launches in the... Uh, he, he like launches off the mountain and then he opens up his parachute and it's a Union Jack. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, the, there was one James Bond movie in the Roger Moore that was like, yeah, here's the essentially the best of James Bond in one movie. I'll tell you that Cormac T. Rorden, and I know I mispronounced that. Riordan? Riordan. Uh, says, I wouldn't put any Bond on a best list. Ooh. Ooh. He's more of a... a John Steed fan. Uh, 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 Xander Cage. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Robert James Cole, though, says, My first James Bond movie was Live and Let Die, mm. so that will always be the best one to me. The underlying racism is a little bit problematic, but so <laughs> is Sean Connery slapping women's asses. It's true. The worst James Bond is Die Another Day. The late 90s extreme. Oh, God, yes. Without, the late 90s extreme, without the E, well, uh, let's, culture. Let's be clear, 2002. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it feels like a late 90s Yo, movie. Oh, absolutely. But the late 90s extreme culture managed to create the most unwatchable James Bond movie ever made, oh. and Madonna's theme song is among the biggest travesties in audio history. That movie has a character named Mr. Kill. Is that not the one... That's the one with the hovercraft chase at the is beginning? Is that the one with Denise Richards as a rocket scientist? No, that is The World Is Not Enough. That's the one that ends with Christmas Comes But Once a Year or something along those lines. Well, sometimes, not at all. Wait, yeah. that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> How is that sexy? She's very cold. Sometimes I don't come at all, Mr. Bond. Ooh, I like that. Oh, I love a challenge. I like a challenge in the bedroom. What does uh, Thomas Karwacki say? Ooh, Thomas Karwacki. Great name, Tom. I took the fall for you. In case <laughs> I mispronounced you. that. Says, uh, Tom says, I'm a huge Bond fan, and even though this is a fan favorite, it's not one of mine. <gasps> Bond doesn't do much. That's true. He's basically led around by the other people the whole time. From Russia with Love is a much better movie and my personal favorite. I don't remember From Russia with Love all that much. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, it's true, though. If you look at it, like, you know, people make that Raiders of the Lost Ark argument. Yeah. Is that Indiana Jones doesn't actually yeah. accomplish a lot? It's kind of true. Bond yeah. doesn't really do a whole lot. Like, he, he defeats Oddjob, kind he, of. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he's there for everything. But even at the very end of the movie, as we mentioned, when he goes in, when the bomb gets defused, he doesn't defuse it. A no. guy runs in and touches it. And he's like, oh, I got this. And he kills Goldfinger in self-defense. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> he just happened to be there. He just was along for the ride. 
as much as we were. Uh, Sharon Horwat, I think, shares a uh, one one similar opinion with you, though. She says, "I'm not a big Bond fan, but it is definitely the best of Bond songs for sure." Hell yeah, the man with the minus touch. You know what doesn't make any sense What's to me that? though? Why does she say a spider's touch? A spider's touch. And why uh, does she rhyme touch with touch? Well, well, it's from the Clone High Gandhi school of rhyming. G spot rocks the G spot. <laughs> wow. Um, Good ref. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Some I don't know. I don't know. Like, you can't explain a Bond song. You just have to embrace it. You have to have it inside you, like Bond himself. Gotcha. So let's sing it. Die another day. <laughs> I don't know what the song is. Um, Jeffrey Simons. Okay, this is interesting. All right. I am in that rare category of people who think Timothy Dalton is the best Bond simply because he is probably the best actor to play James Bond and he actually gives a nod to the source material. What do you think about that? My, my, my Timothy Dalton impression was always, I'll have a vodka martini shaken, not stirred! It's very angry, so very aggressive. So you're agreeing. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, I'll tell you what, I've never seen Timothy Dalton. Is he a bad Bond? No, he's fine. Okay. I mean, like... Uh, different take. It's a different take on Bond. I mean, those movies aren't great. Like, he, did, he did what, two? Yeah, he did uh, uh, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. And it's weird, too, because, I mean, somebody like George Lazenby, who a lot of people don't like as Bond, still say his movie is <laughs> one of the better ones. Yeah, I, I that's... Yeah, uh, I believe the James Bonding podcast... Uh, uh, advances that theory that that that's actually a pretty damn good movie it really is yeah yeah um oh and who else is in that diana rigg is in that movie but that's not relevant <laughs> steven michael lynn apparently my sworn enemy now yeah because he says roger moore nobody did it better and <laughs> like- <laughs> that's a good reference nobody does it better is that a reference? That's that's the that's a title from uh, I think Octopussy. I think that's the name of the 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 title song of Octopussy is Nobody Does It Better. Well, there you go, uh, Stephen. Good ref, Stephen. You're 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 lucky. Jason's here. <laughs> uh, he says, "In Live and Let Die" was my personal favorite. He was the best in terms of what makes a quintessential Bond, and he did it without being terribly sexist to an extent. And just to throw this out there, if anyone who likes podcasts and James Bond, check out the James Bonding podcast. Okay, well. Yeah, Matt and Matt. Throw an ad in there. Do you work for Matt Mira? Do you work for him? Number one, it's Myra. Myra, whatever. Or Matt Gorley. The two Matts. Both very funny men. Did you see them trying to throw a fucking wrench in our podcast? No, I know. They're trying to to throw us... Throw them over to their podcast? Is that what he's trying to do? I, I, I don't think Stephen Michael Lynn is a pseudonym for, no. for Matt it's Myra. Matt, Myra. <laughs> Matt, if you're listening, I want to talk about Star Trek with you. Stephen, are you Matt Gorley or Matt Myra? We want to know. Get at us on Twitter. If you're Matt Gorley, uh, can we talk to Conan? Because that would be sweet. Uh, then I asked a question. I did, only got two real responses on this one, but I asked Goldfinger or Dr. No. Mm-hmm. Because that is what we kind of debated a little bit. We yeah. didn't want to get into it too much because we haven't discussed Doctor No yet. Yeah, hasn't come up yet. Uh, but uh, episode fifty six. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be crazy now if it was episode? Uh, so I asked like Goldfinger or Doctor No, and James Mirabello said it's a tough one. One introduced the character, whereas Goldfinger perfected the formula that we all know and love. Personally, I think Goldfinger is the stronger of the two. And then yeah. Sean Williams Holt. Much, much, uh, much more, I don't want to say, much more in, in the favor of Goldfinger, mm-hmm. <laughs> aggressively. Uh, watch them back to back right now. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right, we'll be right back. Uh, 
Okay, oh. we just watched them back to back. I was Man, that was a long four hours. Four hours. We're back to the podcast. Uh, he says, Dr. No is almost boring in comparison. I'd say Goldfinger, you're going to like this. I'd say Goldfinger is the Wrath of Khan to Dr. No's the motion picture. That's actually probably a damn good comparison because it, I have not seen Dr. No since I watched it back in the day and I remember it being super boring. And I'll tell you, Star Trek the motion picture is also super boring. Um, also not not received well at all right no well it was kind of middling when it came out the yeah. reception wasn't great but the like, wrath of khan was just so much better i was gonna say i feel like dr no was received a lot better though than like yeah. star trek the motion yeah picture. well because yeah, yeah. especially as it was a a relatively new character to a lot of people like this wasn't a continuation i mean sure people read the books but there wasn't like a james bond tv series i mean you had super you had luke skywalker <laughs> yeah so we get to our last thing here, which is when we take number 70 on the BFI list, which was Goldfinger, of course, yep. and compare it to number 70 on the AFI list, the American Film Institute. 2002's Die Another Day. <laughs> nope. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, I want to thank, I also want to give a shout out to Steve Kondrick for sitting in for Jason last week while I read the comments about Henry V. Thanks, so. Steve. You're a good dude. I don't even. I didn't even know that happened. And, yeah. Uh, but I'm going to thank you, and then Brendan and I are going to have a very, very strong talk after this is over. <laughs> Jason was never away. I just didn't call him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <coughs> wow, this is really interesting. Okay, number seventy on the AFI list is a Clockwork Orange, Ooh. which we've already covered. We've already covered. Uh, well, well uh, so yeah, that's a. Well, that I, is a tough... I mean. I'll say it right now, because I know Clockwork is, I mean, spoiler alert, we will get, we will, after about 20 movies, we're going to do a ranking episode, so mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil too much, but Clockwork is very high up my list right now, yeah. so I'm going to have to say Clockwork Orange gets the edge. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I love Goldfinger. It's a great yeah. movie. Uh, as it's far a, as James Bond movies go, it's one of the best, but as far as a movie that I can watch over and over again and always be entertained by, Clockwork has the edge. And I want to say this without sounding like a fucking artsy asshole. Uh, but well, you know what? I want you to sound like an artsy asshole, so say it like an artsy uh, uh, asshole. Okay. Well, I feel that um, A Clockwork Orange is more of a film, yeah. whereas Goldfinger is more of a movie. Absolutely. You have to understand that the masses are not uh, valid in their opinions. And, no. Uh, uh, a Stanley Kubrick film uh, is one that one should appreciate simply because Kubrick is a white man. Holy shit, we missed out on Stanley Kubrick directing a Bond movie. Oh man, that would have been amazing. <laughs> God, think of the wide shots. Holy shit. Or, uh, wait. Would have been the first flat James Bond you movie. Know, you know what we can still do? Wes Anderson directing a Bond movie. Ooh, ooh, I don't know about James Bond I'm being a, centered. I'm a secret agent. I've come to shoot you. <laughs> but anyway... After the very long uh, diatribe about Goldfinger, we got to get to this week's film, which is Black Narcissus. Let's get these nuns on the run, Brendan! So yeah, we are talking about uh, Black Narcissus or Narcissus? 
I, I in the movie they, he says narcissist. Okay, so, so I'm gonna we'll, go with that. We'll go with the movie pronunciation of the flower that or scent or whatever. Was it a flower? Was it a scent? It was, was a. It was a. Perfume? I thought it was like a kerchief or whatever, a handkerchief or something. Yeah, but I thought it had like a scent on it. Oh, maybe I don't know. Why did we? How did this not come up in our research? <laughs> we should have. We should know this, Brendan. Wait, this we is, wa- this is, We are so unprofessional. Wait, were point. we supposed to watch this movie first? I mean, I thought that was. Part I was of just it. gonna put it on the background. Oh well, we could just commentate it. <laughs> All right, let's watch. Ooh. Oh, these credits are long. Yeah. yeah. What, what's with the guy? What's with the shirtless guy banging the gun? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Criterion. Oh, cool. Oh. This movie's we... gonna be long. Yeah, we should talk about it. Black Narcissist. Mm-hmm. Jason, what is Black Narcissist about? This is our first Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger movie, of which there are four collaborations on this list mm-hmm. and five by Michael Powell. All right. So this, Brendan, is a movie about some nuns. This okay. is not Sister Act. Well, let's roll the dice to find out. <laughs> this is not Sister Act. I'll tell you, this is not Nuns on the Run. This is not... Wasn't Sean Penn in a movie where he was a nun? I think so. I feel like there had to be been one. Mystic River. Oh, that's the one. Uh, so this... But this movie kind of focuses on, on a nun specifically. And this nun is named Sister Cloda. What a name. Cloda. 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 Sister Cloda. Sister. I don't know why I'm doing that accent. But it's fun. Yeah. Uh, Sister Cloda is a nun, and she is given a new task by another nun. In fact, this nun is Mother Superior. Mother yes. Superior says, "Guess what, Sister Cloda? Against my recommendation, essentially, you are being put in charge of a new mission, a new convent. We're sending you out to Nepal, to a place that looks very much like Far Cry Four, and <laughs> there you are going to set up a convent in an old palace, Mobu." Uh, yeah, Palace Nobu, given to us by the General Nobu, who we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, we'll uh, we definitely dive deep dive on him. And you're going to set this place up and run it. And so, are you game? And she's like, of course I'm game. I want to be the super nun. I want to be Sister Superior. And if you're wondering, these are the exact lines. These are the exact lines. I'm quoting the dialogue directly from the film. No, they were very ahead of their time in 1947. <laughs> of course I want to. Of course I'm game. I'm a super nun. I'm in it to win it. I'm in it to win it. I'm, down. I'm not winning. here to make friends. Hashtag winning. Hashtag tiger blood. <laughs> Really, really ahead of the game. Yeah. So, it is, so yeah. So, Mother Superior offers his position. She, of course, accepts because she wants to prove herself. And Mother Superior goes ahead and assembles her an Avengers-like team of nuns. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. To uh, go along. So we You'll need up Sister Bryony uh, for sister, her strength. Exactly, Sister Bryony for her strength. Sister Blanche. Sister, slash sister, well, sister we'll, we'll get, Sister Philippa first because Sister Philippa was going to grow all the food. Right. She's sister Sister Blanche is the popular one, aka Honey. They call yeah. her Honey. Which I'm like, uh, she's just the sweetest gal you'll ever know. Well, I, when she said she's the popular one, yeah. I wonder if they were saying more there. Well, uh, well, in the sense that maybe she was like a popular girl in high school, and she had a, because she was charismatic. She had a wild past. Well, she has no. I don't think so. I she think had a wild, wet, just wild seems, past. She just seemed really, really nice and just fun to be around. So she seems like the one to be like, oh, she's definitely our PR lady. She's well, speaking our of liaison to the public. Speaking of definitely not those characteristics, we okay. also have Sister Ruth. There's Sister Ruth now. Sister Ruth is a a very sick. Uh, for some reason, I don't know that we ever she's, find out why. I think it's this movie's way of saying she's mentally ill. Possibly, but she's always really sweaty. Like, no matter what's going on, she's always super sweaty. So there's definitely something physical going on. Because none of the other nuns are sweaty. Mm. I mean, well, she's I mean, a redhead, they do, so... They all fine. get, like, some sort of boils and stuff like that. Do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, well, I mean, and I guess they're in India, but they're in the mountains, too. So it's very cold. The air is very clear. That comes up a lot. Um, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. But Mother Superior's 
plan with Ruth is that by okay. sending her on this mission, uh, she'll help turn her around. This will really, like, you know how, it's that religious view that if you just put people to work, then they'll write themselves. So, yeah. Let's put this bitch to work is basically what Mother That's Superior what she says said. exactly. That's literally what she says. Let's put this bitch to work. Like we're all we're just quoting dialogue. Yeah, and I was I was shocked uh, <laughs> by that kind of language in nineteen forty seven. Put this bitch to work and then and then we had a montage to Oh <laughs> freak out <laughs> So they head out to the mountains, uh, the palace of Mofu in the mountains. They head out what to did the you call pal- it? the I said mountains. mountains. No, did you say Mofu? Let's let's try let's take take it again. Oh, uh, uh, excuse me. George, can, can we take it from the top? Yes, George. Uh, can you can you say things about the horse? Uh, we, I will talk about Sa- the horse. Sand, sand is really coarse. Sa- sand is very coarse. Uh, it's not like love. It's it's very much like that. Uh, uh, two sugars. Oh, I'll, when we're done this scene, I'll get your coffee, George. And act. They head out to the palace at Mopu, which has been a, a sort of an abandoned complex that belongs to the old general Mopu, who <laughs> it was his father's uh, place where he used to keep his concubine. So it was rather appropriate now that where he used to go fuck a bunch of ladies, he's going to bring in some new ladies that people aren't supposed to aren't supposed to do that. To. Yeah, well, this is a, this is the first sign that this movie is going to uh, turn things on its head a little bit because you know you're starting out with a, a, a like you said it's a palace where. The I believe the general used to have basically his harem, yep. like he used to have his ladies, and we're going from that to a nunnery. Yeah. So right uh, off the bat, there you're like they're going to turn it into a nunnery. It is not a nunnery; it is a convent. No, but th- there's a character, that and says, I know, I know, and then that's why it's funny. He says yeah. nunnery. Now I'm sure you folks know that in, in because of Shakespeare, when one says nunnery, one actually means a whorehouse. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. it's in Hamlet. He said because he tells Ophelia, "Get thee to a nunnery," rather than saying convent. So do you think that's Oh, I think that's that that's, guy making a joke when he calls him a nunnery. I did not know that. Yeah. Fun fact. Fun fact. So yeah, and and we do get to meet the old General Mopu, played by a, a British actor whose name is Edward something. Esmond Knight. And Esmond where do Knight. we know him from? We know Esmond. Esmond's an old friend of ours because he was in Henry V. Yes, and um, I'm pretty sure he was browned up in that movie what, too. <laughs> what color is his skin? Well, I'm pretty sure he is as British as pasty and British as they come, but he is browned up quite hard in this movie. Uh, yeah, to the point where I was like. Okay, that man is not Indian, but I didn't know it was Esmond Knight. I yeah. was I knew he was in this, but I was like he plays the old general. I was like, yeah. "Oh." I mean, and and I'm not going to pretend that any of the characters in this movie are particularly subtle, but this guy is almost cartoonishly oh. over the top. <laughs> if you ever had like if you ever had like a video essay with like the, the over-the-top caricatures or racist, like, old Hollywood, yeah. this would be in that video. Yeah, I, I think it would probably show up. Uh, it, it is. It has the tone of something that would have been made, like, in the 80s as a parody of that. This might be the, <laughs> this might be the most aged thing we've covered yeah, so far. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, it's not that anything he says is particularly offensive. It's just it's the fact that, A, it's a white actor in brown face, and, B, <laughs> he's so cartoonishly foreign and, yeah. and silly, and, and he's not in the movie very much. No, he's in this one scene. That's it. But we also have, uh, in addition to him, we also have the housekeeper uh, of Aya, the place, or... uh, Angu Aya, who is clearly also a white woman in yellow face. I thought she was just... <laughs> Playing a white woman. Uh, I, I looked up her name, and I, if I remember correctly, her name, she was... Uh, no, I think she's, like, Asian. I think she's supposed to be Nepalese. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because she has an accent and everything. Uh, however, the young boy, Joseph Anthony, he seems to be legit. Yeah, and uh, Sabu later on. Yeah, anyway, so... I don't want to jump <laughs> all over the place. Uh, you were talking about Esmond Knight. So what happens in this scene? Uh, what happens in this scene specifically? <laughs> I remember they end up meeting. And... Well, the old general is basically doing this uh, speech about how he's going to bring the nuns there. Right. And Aya, Aya, 
She's yeah. very uh, opposed to this. So apparently, they had monks there for a while. It didn't mm-hmm. work out. And I think she just—I think at that point, she's just been there so long, and she feels like the place is hers. Oh, she's like so a she's cantankerous. Just, yeah, she's yeah. very angry. <laughs> but then you know, we meet Mr. Dean, who's like kind of just blasé to the whole thing. Very dashing British fellow from yes. 1947, who's literally dressed like the Pied Piper of Hamlet at one point. <laughs> so he—he he, he goes native in a way that a British person would go native. He's which, like wearing sandals and like a fucking like leaf hat. Yeah, which I'm wondering, <laughs> like Pied Piper of Hamlet, maybe that's an intentional thing too. Maybe. Well, he, he some of the things he people. says in this movie. Movie. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? Uh, so, yeah, so after that. He wants them to turn it into a school and an infirmary so that uh, for the townsfolk that are nearby. Yes. We've got the, the housekeeper. We've also got the translator, which is a main character, the little boy, who I laughed when he said he was between 6 and 11. Yeah. And they asked him how old he was. 6 11, never forget. <laughs> um, so, so he's provided. He's basically the, the, the general just is like, here, here's a boy of mine. You may have him and he will translate for you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah it's basically just like we meet the characters yeah we meet all the characters and the nuns slowly make their way in oh and we also get to see the holy man that sits on a hill outside the uh the complex yes and who we learn later him. is the uncle of the general oh okay yeah, it's like a throwaway part. line but oh. it's in there and so yeah so and but the one they see the most the one character they see the most is mr dean who's kind of the british like liaison for by him. david farrar yes he uh i don't know him from anything else i'm sure he'll be in something else that we watch he's in another power what i do know about him is that he stopped acting in like the 60s and if he's not still alive now it wasn't long ago he died uh judging the fact that he looks i mean again we've gone over how people look looked older back then mm. but he looks like he's at least 45 he looks like he's 45 but he's and, probably 22 you know and so if he's 45 and a movie made in 19 47? Probably not alive. Unless no, he's, he's Kirk Douglas to the extreme. I don't think he was that old. I don't think he was 45. Like I, say, I, I think, think he, he was. 28. Like, I think he was like like in his 30s at least. Or 40. <laughs> Alright, so we uh, yeah we also meet uh, Kanchi, who's hmm. a teen that is brought in. Another character Another in character. Brownface. Another character in Brownface. Played so by Gene famous... Simmons, who by the way, Gene Simmons was gorgeous. Yes, she was. She was. She's even good in this, despite the brown face. She's very good looking. Um... So she's a teen who's clearly super horny um, and is acting outside her cast and she's going to be a problem, but they, they let her come in anyways because they're nuns and that's what they do. Well, it's it's a it's a person that Mr. Dean kind of brings in because he's like, you know, she always hangs around outside my veranda putting flowers uh-huh. in her hair. Sure. See, because Mr. Mr. Dean makes a comment at one point about, like, uh, they say, we're going to educate the girls in the village. And he says, I'd appreciate it if you'd educate the girls in the village for me. Like, and it's just the micro, what has he been doing? This is this this town is his personal harem, and he's just been working his way through it. See, I took it uh, as either he was grateful, or he was just like, I'd appreciate you educate them, then yeah. they won't fuck me. Yeah. No, I think he's just a creep, uh, and we'll see why. Uh, and then we also introduce to the young general, which is the son of the old general, Played by Sabu. Played by the great Sabu. The suicidal, genocidal, <laughs> homicidal Sabu. Yeah. Uh, not, not the wrestler, guys. Really? No. Were you? Did you think it was? I did. Oh, no, it's not Sabu. Damn it. Did you think that the old general was Rob Van Dam? Yes, absolutely. Oh, no, it's not you, Rob Van Dam. smoking all that weed? Ed, Esmond Knight. Oh, oh. Yeah, sorry, Jason. Right. Rob Van Dam was not in Henry V? Well, he was, but oh, just not, not that, that role. Not that role. So, All the uh, non-wrestling people are like, what the yeah. fuck are you talking so about? So the young general shows up. Played by Sabu. Played by Sabu. He is the, the son of the old general. And he wants yes. to be educated at the nun's complex. And the nuns are like, 
know, we kind of only educate children and girls. And, and But he has his whole curriculum planned out. Yeah, I this, think this guy so who's on the ball, he like shows up with everything he specifically wants to learn. I want French and Russian between five and seven. Yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah. He has a schedule made up. He has a literal schedule made up of every day. Like what? he's very, yeah. I don't know why he expects that they're going to know all that stuff. I mean, they're nuns. They're not. Well, they are scientists. Te- I mean, no, they're teachers, the but teachers, yeah. it's like, oh, I want to learn like abstract physics. And it's like, well, we didn't really <laughs> from take the physical that. nun. Yeah, that's what he says. That's the exact line. I want to learn physics from the physical nun. <laughs> uh, what I really like, though, about this character, well, I think he's great in this yeah. movie, by the way. But what I really like is when he goes to the schoolroom. The classroom. Everybody's kind of on the floor and stuff. He he's he wants to learn, but he still can't. He still can't not be himself as a rich entitled prince yep. because he has his own little table yeah. <laughs> right in front of the, the teacher, and that's when he takes out the uh, the scent on his like hank- yeah. handkerchief, and she says, "What's that?" He's like, "Oh, it's black narcissist. You don't like the smell." And Sister Ruth, of course, is very on edge. This whole the movie. whole movie, and she's, she's like, "No, I don't like the smell. I don't like smells or something like that." So anyway, he's in class. Bitch. Maybe it would be easier to talk about like his kind of journey, and then we go back to the main story because this it, he kind of like weaves in and out of this movie. Well, because he at some point because uh... he 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 he's in class. Yeah, he's conjugating French, all that stuff. Yeah. he falls for Kanchi, mm-hmm. uh, Gene Simmons, and a girl face. of a different cast of possibly even the lowest cast. Yeah, when we mean cast, we don't mean the ones on your legs. Yeah. So this movie takes place in India, right near the end of the British Raj, and in India for many a long, very long time, the society was run by a very strict caste system, and if generally, if you were of a different caste, you could not like have relationships or associate with someone. Yeah, you couldn't a, even sign their cast. Yeah, exactly. Of a lower cast, at least. Uh, I don't know how the rules worked. I'm sure they were very complicated. But uh, but if she was low enough of a cast that this was probably going to be a problem for the young uh, general should he ever decide to go public with his relationship. Yeah. Uh, and he basically saves her from... Being whipped being for whipped. stealing something. Yes, yeah. The, Which is pretty cruel. And yeah, the housekeeper was just giving her the business, just yeah. just hoeing into her. And then tells the uh, tells the young general here, finish the job. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes to kind of do it, like he like kind of stands there, like he might actually do it. But then he's like, oh no, this is a girl that I could possibly do. Something and did you with. notice though that like they have so they have their moment where yeah. can't she like embraces him, but there's no kiss. Because despite the fact that she is wearing brown face and supposed to be playing an Indian, they still won't do an interracial uh, kiss. 1947, yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. No, not surprised at all. It was a different time uh, with some real racist shitheads. (laughs) Jason, you need to talk like that. With some real racist shitheads is what I said to shitheads. Sorry. You're so quiet. Which is weird for me. I know! Alright, so let's see here. Where do we go? Where do we do? So there's a lot of different things for these nuns to deal with. There's cultural differences between them and the townsfolk. Obviously, they're they're Anglican nuns, and these are townsfolk. Many of them are probably Buddhists, based on or uh, yeah. yeah, based on we see the the Buddhist fellas blowing the horn. A lot of times they're referred to as primitive yeah. ch- children. Yeah, and then, and then there, but there's also else. characters that are clearly Hindu as well. Yeah, yeah, but apparently a lot of them don't even speak English or Hindustani. Yeah. Uh, Nepalese or something from that Chinese maybe yeah I don't know the environment is complex it's cold and it's exposed and the air is just too fresh they keep commenting on how fresh the air is and that it's somehow bad for them they keep making reference to the air being fresh why are they so obsessed with the air being fresh it's going to be a good thing I'm guessing it's like a little bit of symbolism though for like I think I mean, it's too fresh I don't I, I don't want I, I want to get into it once you get through the plot right. here so We'll get there. So the nuns, they uh, but they open an infirmary, which is surprisingly busy right off the bat. Everybody yeah. suddenly shows up. 
But they learn that turns out that the old general has been paying everybody to come to them. This is what I want to ask. Yeah. Why would he do that? Because he wants to get them in the habit of going to them. And he thinks that if Is he, that a pun? Well, no, he, I think he literally or somebody literally... Habit. Did I? I just want to know if that was a pun because he said habit. It wasn't, but I wish I'd known it was. Okay. I would have I would have hammered down on it. <laughs> um, no, he... I, 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 I don't know if he says it or if somebody else says it. Or somebody is at... No, I think Mr. Dean might say something about it. Where yeah. he's like, no, he pays them... Because he wants to get them into the habit of going, and once they once they start doing it for money, eventually they'll realize the value of it, and they'll just do it because they want to, rather than that they're being paid to do it. So they're of course they feel a little weird about that. Uh, and Mister Dean also advises the nuns that if anybody comes in and they're on the verge of death, to just go ahead and let them die, because if they try to treat them and then they die anyways, which is a distinct possibility, the townsfolk will then blame the nuns, and that won't be good for anybody. Yeah, he tells the story of, like, one time it happened where someone uh, moved uh, an umbrella. Yeah. Uh, or the, the they were on a horse, and the horse ran over the umbrella, and there was a child underneath. And they didn't know the horse trampled the child, and the townsfolk killed the man who uh, was riding the horse. Huh. So he says, like, yeah, that's what you have to look out for. Yeah. They will murder you. She has to manage everything. Sister Gloda. Sister Cloda has to manage everything. And deal with her own personal shit. Because she's got her own baggage, Brendan. Yeah, she's got, her, right. she's got her own flashbacks. We keep having 40s flashbacks to her time before being a nun, where her hair was free and her spirit was as free as her hair. <laughs> and she was hanging out with some dude named Khan. Now, I don't know about you, Brendan, but if I was a young lady in the 40s and I wanted to get married to some fella, I don't think I'd get married to a fella whose name was Khan. That's the thing I was thinking of, too. C-O-N. Now, yeah. if his name was K-H-A-N, I would scream, Khan! I guess I should mention this right now. Please I was going to save it for the background, but since we're at this part, All right. I don't know if you know this, but the Catholic League of Decency, mm. um, they did not allow this movie to get released in some places with these flashback scenes. <laughs> so they couldn't even deal with the fact that there yeah. was going to be a character who is a nun uh, in scenes where she is not a nun. Yeah, she might have had a relationship before becoming And that she might have been pining for it a little bit. Scandalous. And I think they're actually Anglican nuns, so I don't know why the Catholic Church was getting all up in arms over this, but just, I guess, they feel nuns are their brand, so they have to protect them no matter where the nuns come from. you got to protect your brand. That's right. (laughs) The unimpeachable brand of the Catholic Church. They are the LeVar Ball of big baller (laughs) brands. So yeah, she'd be engaged to Mary, but that fell apart. Because his name was Khan! Because his name was Khan. And she knew what she was in for, and so she said "fuck it," and probably didn't say that, but but thought it. She and said it. Took her vows and joined one of these weird Anglican convents that you apparently can do yearly vows. Yeah, yeah. Well, Which, I think because they were like, yeah, it was. I, I'm not sure. I, guess, I mean, I, I'm sure it's a real thing. But uh, the the other superior, I think, explained it. Her point was is that by having yearly vows, it was truly a voluntary service, and you yes. knew that you weren't. You weren't just staying in none because you had to be. You were being in none because you wanted to be, and you renewed those vows every year. Yes. You are correct, sir. Ha. Ha. Right. So, um... Hey, wow, this is some wild and so like stuff. So, like many 40s movies, she is a woman scorned, and... Uh, maybe not scorned, but she's, like, clearly is longing. Yes. She misses uh, the company of a, of a fine of a gentleman. gentleman. And she finds one, she finds some company in the presence of Mr. D. Now, I'm not saying anything dirty happens. I don't think it does, honestly. But they definitely have some, some you know, in-depth conversations. Yep. Uh, some some intimate moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but nothing so crass as kissing. I think or... it's very underneath the surface. Yes, it's it's very it's very much under the habit, you might say. Uh, there you uh, go. There we go. Now you're embracing it. Uh, but Sister Cloda is not the only nun. There is another nun. There are three, and her name is Sister Ruth. Yes, and Sister Ruth also is deathly attracted to Mr. To Mr. Dean. Dean because Mr. Dean says one quick thing to her. As a compliment, mm-hmm. and she just latches on to that. You know how women are, Brendan. You say one thing to them, and all of a sudden, they want to get married. <sighs> I'll be writing emails again this week. <laughs> but that's that's what it was thought of, you know, back in the day. And and you know what? And to be fair, the kind of woman that would just like fall in love with a guy after he said one thing that was barely even directed at her. Um, yeah, crazy, crazy, Brendan. Stay away from that. Like I said, she's clearly got some sort of mental imbalance. Obsessive feelings and compulsions. Paranoia. Everybody, yeah, paranoia. Like, like that's the thing about this movie is that the characters are are very rote in a lot of ways. Like, they're not. There's not a lot of dimension to them. And Sister Ruth, I think, is first among them because there's really not much more to Sister Ruth besides the fact that she starts off sick and angry and then gets sick and obsessive and then goes crazy. I would argue there's a lot of dimension to, like, Sister Cloda. Cloda, yeah. There's a little more to her, for sure. Uh, But, like, outside of her, like, most of the characters feel kind of... Some of the the, the good nuns, you know, they kind of have a little bit of a change of heart, good or bad. Uh, over the course of the movie. Well, I mean, before we get... before we and really Mr. Dean with... is just a guy just partying and having a good time and living the life, going native. I think before we get super into Sister Ruth, we should talk about Sister Philippa because there are some other things that happen that kind of uh, are kind of an eerie yeah. foreboding to this kind of change in uh, attitudes because Sister Philippa is planting the wrong things in yes, the garden. Yes, she's supposed... She is supposed to be planting vegetables and food. And she's planting flowers. flowers. And I think, my theory, I think, is that she's uh, doing this on purpose so she can get a mark against her. Because I think she wants to leave the order, too. Mm-hmm. And Because even when uh, Sister Claude is like, okay, well, well, I can have you transfer back, but it'll be a mark against you. And she's like, yeah, I hope it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also have Sister... This is a real turning point in the movie. A sister Blanche slash sister Honey. Yeah. Uh, they're operating. They're they're operating on a small child, yes. a baby. Sister Brioni is kind of uh, sister Brioni. Yeah, yeah. Brioni is like I, I send this child to bed because she's she's clearly thinking about what Mr. Dean said earlier about yeah. if the situation is serious, don't treat them because if they end up dying, it will come back on you. However, Sister Honey cannot resist herself to helping this child, she so she does to. give him something. Yeah, she gives him something, and, and, and the child dies. And yes, then now this is the point where the villagers are apparently quite angry, yeah. but nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mr. Dean has kind of calmed them down because he took the drink, he took the medicine himself in yeah. front of them to show that that it was harmless. So I mean, I think this is also a big character thing for Mr. Dean because he mm-hmm. kind of goes from like the suave kind of playboy to a little more like nuanced, maybe yeah. a little more. I would say yeah. showing that he's willing to do. Something he's also like that. Not, he's not just a total dickwad. Yeah, but it's also in his interest. It's kind of his job there to to be a liaison, and I suppose that's part of his job description is True. to keep things smooth between the town and the and the people. Yeah. So, I mean, that happens. And then oh, uh, Sister Ruth starts losing her mind. Yeah, Sister Ruth starts going nuts because she, she just wants Dean so bad. She just she thinks that Cloda is trying to get with him. Yeah, and she spies them at one point having a conversation, and that just about fucking sets her off. Uh, Cloda also is telling Sister Ruth, like, we're going to send you away. Mm-hmm. We're going to... Uh, I don't know we're going to send you away, but maybe we, should, maybe we should think about transferring you. Yeah, and she's and like, no, I want out. Yeah, and she says, "No, I'm giving up my, I'm giving up, I haven't renewed my vows." Yeah, 
Clodagh tries to convince her to stay and suggests that maybe she wait till morning. And so Clodagh falls asleep, and then Ruth just takes off and heads into town to find Dean. Well, we should say when Clodagh tells her to wait till morning, yeah. Ruth is rid of her habit. Yeah, she's, she's wearing a red dress. She's her hair is like her hair is out. She's she's a forties Whoopi Goldberg. She's a f- <laughs> she's that's not the word I would use to describe her. <laughs> but she's ready for a night on the town. That's right. She is looking good, and she wants to she wants to party. And she goes to Mister Dean's. Finds a two party house, and to party she goes and breaks into his house. <laughs> well, I mean, I think she just walks in. Well, yeah, I mean, she breaks in, yes, but I don't think it's locked. <laughs> she she unforcibly enters the house, yes, and goes and stands there and starts looking at his shit, and he walks in and is like, "What?" And she's like, "I've given up everything to be with you." And he's like, "What?" And she's like, "We can be together now." And he's like, "What?" No, he's a uh, he's not very happy about that. He's like, what are, what are you talking about? Like, I barely know who you are. Like, and the be- the best thing in the scene is she says like, I love I I love you. Don't you love me? And he says, I love no one. Yeah, which is like, I I do like that moment because it's like a thing where he's like, no, he he's he's you know he is who he is. He, he nails is- his character in that situation. He's like, I love no one. Yeah, I I just work my way through every town I'm in. Go and talk to Sister Cloda. She brought you here, she can get you back again. Sister Cloda, Sister Cloda! Do you know what she says about you? Well, whatever she said, it was true. You said that because you love her! I don't love anyone! Cloda. 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 But yeah, so he turns her down, she passes out, and then we get come kind of come to the big finale here is when she yeah. she goes back to uh, the, the, the the nunnery, right? Yeah, she goes back to the old nunnery. And Sister Clodagh has gotten up and realized she's gone, but Sister Clodagh's got to do what Sister Clodagh's got to do, and Sister Clodagh's got to go ring the bell. Now, uh, a few times throughout the movie, it's been shown in some of the beautiful cinematography that the bell is on the edge of a wall uh, that overhangs uh, a large drop. And it's always been Ruth ringing the bell. Yeah, it's and always been Ruth ringing the bell. I think... In this bit, so Ruth comes out of the shadows, looking like really sinister, really angry. Like it's 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 a great shot, yeah, and she's got some, her some makeup harsh is, makeup on. It's yeah. on point though; it's so yeah. good. And she sees Clodagh ringing the bell, and I think that's the tipping point. I think she was already mad, but I think thinking Clodagh is going to steal uh, Mister Dean, thinking Clodagh wants to send her away, and then thinking Clodagh wants to steal her job. Yeah. Now it's like that's just like that's it. You're taking my whole life. You're usurping me. So she straight up tries to murder her. She's like full on like tries to Goldberg spear her off the fucking uh, wall. But they get into a struggle and long story short, Sister Clona comes out on top and throws the bitch off the mountain. Well, I mean, I mean, she, she kind of just avoids it. She, uh, yeah, she like, she does she duck? duck yeah. Does the old, she, the old like, oh, I ducked and flipped her and over. And she's, the... she's like clearly horrified. Yeah. But, uh, so she dies, and, uh, nobody really says anything about it, and they all pack up their shit and leave, and they get down the mountain with all their shit packed up, they got the horses, they got the wagons, and this is kind of a metaphor for Britain at the time, because Britain was getting, was pulling out of India. Yep. Uh, well, certainly did by 1945. A few months after us. Uh, yeah, exactly. This was when the decolonialization... Well, not decolonialization, because it, it was still months, a dominion. A few months before this. But yeah, so. in the process of the British Raj ending. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of a metaphor for that. And they walk out, and they see Mr. Dean, and Sister Clodagh says her goodbyes to Mr. Dean, and then the rain starts. And there's this beautiful shot of rain just coming down over the caravan as they all walk away, and that's where the movie ends. Before we go any further, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Jason... Yeah, Brendan. I mean, nuns are great and everything. They sure are, Brendan. But 
I like to get paid for my work. You don't want to have to re-up your vows every two years? No, I don't. And do it for free? No. Well, what can we do instead? Well, you know what you could do and get paid for at the same time? Something you love, Jason. Something I know you love. What's that, Brendan? You can listen to podcasts and get paid for it. What? There is a new podcatcher app called Podcoin. Huh. So what you can do, Yeah. you download the app. You download it. On the App Store. Okay. Or on your Android. Gotcha. And what it is, is you listen to podcasts, and as you listen to podcasts, you are getting pod coins. Pod coins? Yes. So with those pod coins, you can get gift cards. Ooh. You can even donate to charity. Oh, very nice. So you could do that, and you can, you can find us on there. Oh. For screen. And country. That's right. And you can use the promo code ScreenPod. That's S-C-R-E-E-N-P-O-D. And if you do that, Jason... What do we get? You get 300 bonus pod coins right off the bat. Without even... Yeah. Yeah. Without even listening to one goddamn minute of it. That's amazing. So hit it up today. PodCoin. Check it out. Listen to podcasts. Get paid. Get your paper. You can listen to any podcast. Anyone. Any us. podcast. Uh, my other podcast, What Were They Thinking? You can find big ones like Joe Rogan, How Did This Get Made, etc., etc., etc. I'm not giving them free advertisement, those other podcasts. Joe Rogan's got enough money. But I will for PodCoin. PodCoin. And now, back to the show. Nuns. Well, now that we've gone through the film, Jason, let's get some background on this on this puppy. Sure. So, as you said, Black Narciss- Narcissus was released... Actually, it was released a few months uh, before India achieved independence from Britain mm-hmm. in August of 1947. Yes. So there's a film critic named Dave Kerr, and he kind of suggested that the final images of the film, as the nuns are like abandoning, you know, the Himalayas and proceeding down the mountain, uh, could, could have been interpreted by viewers at the time as a sort of last farewell to their fading empire. Well, it was certainly interpreted by this viewer today. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm just I'm just supporting your uh, you. your claim. Thank you. Uh, he suggests that uh, so Dave Care suggests that for the filmmakers, it's not an image of defeat. Like they're not kind of the nuns aren't really like leaving a defeat, but it's rather like a respectful, rational retreat <laughs> from something that England never owned and never understood. Yeah, well, and, yes. and the, the filmmakers, not the, not the real people. No, but I mean that was yes, yes. I see that's how they're portraying. Um, it. This movie's based on a book written in 1939, and apparently the story in this film is pretty damn close to what was written in the book. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a lot in the book. I just know it was based on a book. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. I've not read it, and I don't intend to. So of the three Indian characters in this movie, I think we mentioned it, but only the young general is played by an actual Indian. Yes. Uh, Kanchi, of course, by Gene Simmons. Well, not, not the uh, lead singer from <laughs> Kiss, but the actress Gene Simmons, J-E-A-N. While the old general was played by Esmond Knight, uh, again, both brownface. Late of Henry V. Yes. Simmons, in particular, played the part of Kanchi, uh, is described in the book as a basket of fruit piled high and luscious and ready to eat. Mm. Though she looks shyly down, there is something steady and unabashed about her. The fruit is there to be eaten. She does not mean it to rot. So what I can say is that the movie is far more, or sorry, the book is far more erotic than the movie. Well, I mean, you can say a lot of more things with words than you can in a movie. Like you can't have a narrator being like, "She was like a fruit, red did more to Although rot." She, they, they, her her reveal though, where she's like coyly eating a piece of fruit, was kind of was pretty good too. Yeah, you it really to was the visual version of that passage you just read. Yeah. So most of the movie was shot in Pinewood Studios in England. Ooh, is that James Bond? <laughs> uh, maybe. Or Star Wars. 
uh, with uh, matte paintings and landscape paintings. And basically, the reason... So, I mean, we see a lot of old movies where the background is fake. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like... Uh, it's like a matte painting or whatever, and a lot of times it's a budget thing, or it's just at the time they didn't have yeah. they didn't have that technology. But Powell and Pressburger, while it may have been the budget, their main reason for doing it was so they could easily control the color mm-hmm. on a lot of things. They didn't want to do real shooting outside because they wanted a lot more control kind of over their uh, cinematography. This is a top form example of like Technicolor and use of color in a movie. Yes. it's a vibrant beautiful film and they didn't want can, to depend on natural light yeah basically. They, no exactly and and it's really cool how it works out in the course of this movie so for the costumes um the, uh, th- this is like what they i guess they've talked about it or like historic scholars have talked about it but the nuns are clad and are all clad in white like completely white head to toe uh, but it's also used to highlight kind of the crazy colors and designs of characters like kanshi and mm-hmm. like the old and the young general um, some of the other locals are dressed in more accurate and toned down clothing, but the characters that Powell and Pressburger wanted to highlight were, yeah. uh, intentionally made to look more extravagant, Yeah, which is, uh, pretty cool. Um, so here's a kind of an interesting thing. So the murder attempt that we talked about at the end of the movie where, you know, Kathleen Byron as, uh, Sister Ruth tries to kill, um... Uh, Deborah Kerr playing Sister Clota. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because word at the time was that Kathleen Byron was actually Michael Powell's girlfriend, and Deborah Kerr was his ex. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> this created uh, some real tension. Yeah, between the actresses, and Powell wasn't even like aware of it while he was filming it. Apparently, he just said, "Yeah, apparently this is a thing that happens in Hollywood a lot," and I just kind of shot the scene. <laughs> Uh, so we don't have the exact numbers for this because this is an older movie and mm-hmm. it didn't really see a big release in America, if much at all. Uh, I know I, I watched uh, or I listened to an interview with Martin Scorsese a while ago where he talked about how hard it was to watch these movies back mm-hmm. when they were being made. Yeah. He said he only watched this movie in black and white oh, and he couldn't wow. get a color version of this movie. So, again, we don't have the exact numbers, but the movie cost around $1.2 million U.S., mm-hmm. And I just know that it says it was a, it was a quote unquote notable box office attraction in British theaters. So it did well. Yeah. I imagine like the movies, theaters that were showing in Technicolor were more than enough to draw people in to see this, this painting of a movie, this, this palette, this beautifulness. I guess beauty would be the proper word. So Jason. Brandon. Jason. Brandon. Jason. Brandon. Let's deep dive into this movie. Yeah. Um, I've got some stuff to say. Okay, well, one thing I want to no- I noticed right away. This is a very like old Hollywood thing. I think is uh, when they're putting the- when the credits come up, it says Deborah Kerr. Uh, Deborah Kerr. 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 Anyway, Deborah Kerr. Uh, if you notice, it said her name, and then it says in arrangement with Metro Goldwyn Mayer. So back in the day, t- stars were obviously like tied down to studios. Mm-hmm. So I just think that's interesting that the Powell and Pressburg had to make some sort of deal with MGM mm-hmm. to get one of their contract exactly. players. give them a cut of the movie or some payment. Yeah, they yeah exactly. In those old days, it was like fucking working for a sports team. You'd have to lease them out or something. But anyway, yeah, but so this must have been pretty close to the end of that era, though. Because, I mean, this is 1947, so I think we're pretty close to the studios kind of moving away from that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure at some point, because people would, would eventually got fed up with that shit, that fucking bullshit. I think it should still be like that. Now they got a union, so... So even from these opening credits, I feel like this movie is already making this sort of like a dreamlike world. Yes. So I, th- so I think the backgrounds being kind of fake, I mean, in, with our modern eyes, they look very fake, mm. but I think it kind of adds to it a little bit because I think it kind of makes it seem 
like otherworldly sort of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it gives it a style and, and it helps bring in a vibrancy that it probably wouldn't otherwise have. Like that dreamlike thing that you're talking about. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. You know, just the colors, children. The colors. Well, that, speaking of colors, we need to talk about the colors because the color is a major big thing in this movie. Yes. I mean, start with the white. You open this movie, everything's white. The nuns' habits are white. The ceiling fan, the walls are white. Everything is white. And I think, obviously, white is a symbol of purity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is obviously a movie about how that kind of goes astray. Yeah. And not only that, but the red in this movie. Mm. We need to talk about the red because Sister Sister Ruth. Sister Ruth, when, when, when she takes off that habit and you see that red, bright red lipstick and that bright red hair and that that mm, red nightdress that she's wearing. Nightdress? Is that, no, it's not a nightdress. Nightgown. Are you horning out over yeah. this? Ah, Gene Simmons. She was... That's not Gene Simmons. Oh, isn't it? Who is it? That's uh, Kathleen Byer. Gene uh, Simmons is the is Canchi. Ah, uh, well, they're both good. I would, I'd, you know, tag team. Anyway, um, no, but the red shows up so many times, so it's not just that. Yeah. For one of the first major scenes you see Ruth in, uh, Sister Ruth, uh, first of all, the first shot of her is ringing the bell. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a foreboding, like, yeah. dong, dong. You know, it's very, like... And then the next one you see of her is, like, a Dutch angle. Yeah. Like, it's like it's off a little bit. It's a tilt a little just, bit. Just looks a little crazy. And it's while she's complaining about the children who apparently all smell. Yeah, well. And then the next big scene with her is she enters the room with blood all over her mm-hmm. habit. And yeah. that's like the first sign of like the red. And it's like that is the first like real scene we're getting with Sister Ruth. Like that should tell the viewer something is off about this character. And that is of course when Dean is like, oh, you're treating a colleague of mine because she apparently freaked out, couldn't stop the bleeding. Rather than going to get Sister Bryony, who was an actual nurse, yeah. she tried to do it herself and then got Sister Bryony when she had somehow stopped it. Anyway, Dean is like, yes, it's a colleague of mine, so I appreciate it. That that alone is what sets Sister Ruth off. Yes. And it's like, oh, I must have him. But she got nothing else, really. I mean, she's stuck as a nun. She's, you know, she's not good at what she does as a nun. No, she's None terrible. None of the other nuns like her because she's unlikable. Um, yeah, so this, this guy be, seems to be the one thing that keeps her going, and no wonder she's obsessed with him. How long do you think Aya has lived in this palace? Uh, it's the four old, score and seven years. Old lady uh, caretaker with like a million birds. Uh, 87. 87 years. So I had no idea she was supposed to be playing an Asian character because I didn't even notice that she was like doing like a yellow face. I thing. don't, I don't, I'm not saying that from a perspective of I looked that up and found that out for certain. I'm just saying that, it, that based on how she dressed and based on the accent that she was kind of try, trying to do sort of when it was, wasn't just British. Uh, it sounded like she was trying to be like an Asian housekeeper because why would there be a British person there, Brendan? Why would there be a British person there being the housekeeper in Nepal? Because they have plenty of Indian and Buddhist and and uh, Pakistani. Maybe. Maybe there's some Pakistani. Why are you getting mad there. at me? I didn't write the script. Well, you had a say in it and you didn't say nothing about I it. I did not have a say in this 19. You always talk about how you and Michael Powell were lunch buddies. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. A long time. A long, long time. Uh, so she is very opposed to having these nuns around. Yeah. At, right from the get-go. And something about the monks used to be there. She didn't like that. I, like, what is that? Did she just like, does she think it? I think she just doesn't like people. I think that's what it comes but, down to. But she's excited at first when he says the ladies are coming. Oh. Well, maybe so he thought the, it was going to be a brothel. Well, no, that's what. I bet you she's been there since she ran the. Oh, yeah. she was a 
I don't know, like she probably worked there when they were concubines there. For sure. She's so she probably is thinking about like, shit, I, oh, is he bringing back concubines? It'll be a party again. And then it's like, no, it's going to be nuns. And okay, so you think, you think she's just looking for a little party time? Well, I think that the <laughs> concubines are way more fun than monks or nuns. Yeah. There is a very intentional, I think it's intentional, bit of phallic uh, imagery. Mm-hmm. Or not imagery, but maybe like suggestive. <laughs> because they say, uh, one of the things I, Aya says was like, what do nuns eat? I don't even know what nuns eat. <laughs> and the old general says, they eat sausages. <laughs> I think that's, that's also a British thing too. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's dick. Dick, but, but British people love sausages. We, if we're doing a podcast about British movies, Brendan, and one thing you'll find is that British people love sausages. And dick. All sorts of sausages, all sorts of dicks. <laughs> I want to talk about, uh, Mr. Dean, specifically. One of the first things he says, he, they have a dialogue back and forth, so it's a scene where, um... Uh, Sister Cloda and Sister Bryony are talking to him, and he's wearing that fucking Pied Piper yeah. outfit. <laughs> and uh, she says something about shooting birds, and he says, I don't shoot birds when you've shot everything at pals, doesn't it? And <laughs> I think he's talking about, like, I don't go after loose women. Uh. I think so. Because he's also saying, like, I've been with everyone, so why would I bother going after that? I think he's trying to say, like, I'm going to try to get something a little harder to get. <laughs> I, know, I totally need a challenge. This. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's got nothing else to do out there. Why not? Cloda then makes a big pushback by getting them to get rid of that erotic painting off the wall. Mm. Take that down right now. For whatever reason, I laughed at the scene where Sister Brioni offers to make coffee. Yeah. And I believe Mr. Dean responds with, well, is it good? And then she brings it back, and he takes a sip out of it, and clearly from his face, it is not good. Well, and even like that's one of the first times where Cloda kind of... Uh, lets her guard down a bit. Yeah, and kind of like chuckles. Yeah, because but... she says, "No, it's 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 full of grits." Yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. So the relationship between yeah the relationship between Dean and Claude is very interesting because it starts out very combative, um, not over the top, but very like back and forth. Like mm. he's he's very uncaring about this situation. He's he's kind of teasing them a lot. He's being he's being rather crude in front of these nuns. He's being pretty offensive. I mean, they're they're. They're a little annoyed, understandably so. Yeah, and but throughout the movie, he they kind of like it kind of changes like slowly into somewhat of a respect for each other. Yeah, yeah, they they, they come to seem to it's like they come to like each other eventually, like so many people do. You get to know someone a little better, and you like them. Listen, Jason and I hate each other for twenty years, but through a series of podcasts, we've become closer. Yes. Through British film. So thank you, BFI, for bringing two people together as friends. I love the... Uh, what did you think of the con- like the sound work in this movie? Because there's a lot of wind in the background. Mm. And I noticed that the wind sounds are in, often in like the most dramatic scenes. Yeah. So like the scene where Sister Cloda hears the drum beats, which yeah. is another sound thing. Yes. Is the drums are beating. And, and Sister Bryony's like, well, those drums beat... Uh, because uh, a different young general, not the one we talked about, mm-hmm. is uh, ill. And if the drums stop beating, that means he's died. Yeah. And, yeah, that's a very dramatic scene. And then the drums stop. And then that comes back later. Mm. This other, this, look, another sound thing is as soon as Ruth begins to lose her mind, yeah. as soon as she starts, like, she goes off, the drums start beating. And then when she falls off that cliff, the drums stop. Mm-hmm. But yeah. some good filmmaking, Brendan. It was, yes, to say the least. Um, I do want to question the representation of the holy man. Yeah, 
Because I feel like, okay, so this is a movie that high... I feel like you could say that this movie holds nuns in a pretty high regard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of had to in 1947, no matter what. <laughs> Certainly culturally in England. But I feel like the holy man is mocked a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. It's like this Indian holy man who, by the way, I don't think he's Indian. I think he's a white man in Probably. brown face as well. But um, they don't really respect him. No. Like, especially the nuns, they don't really hold him in high regard. The only time they start to respect him is when they mention that, is when Mr. Dean tells them that this holy man has, like, a war record. Yeah. And is, has, like, a very, like, Western idea of, like, why he should be respected. He knows a lot of languages and he speaks English very well. Oh, okay, well, maybe he's good then. You know yeah. what I mean? It's very like it's uh, it's of the time. I know it's of the time. Yeah, they, he gives her something to relate to to and, yeah. latch on to. Yeah, like I know it's of the time, but goddamn it, it's a little, it's a little. Uh... Well, and it's it's that kind of condescending paternalistic view that the British have often had throughout history of just like mm, look at these people, aren't yeah. they cute? Look how look how look at their culture, isn't it something? One little thing I wanted to point out was there's a cool little. Uh, a bit of uh, symbolism is when they're setting up this Jesus statue mm-hmm. on the top of the stairs and they nearly drop it. Yeah. And the nuns are like, oh, and then they put it back. But it's also like kind of, you know, they're worried about losing their faith or where yeah. they're like, dropping Jesus on the ground. It's the same. Oh. Yeah, it kind of ties together. That is, that is nice. That is nice. Uh, I wanted to point out there's one specific scene. Actually, I think it props up a couple times, but it, it just for what it is. What? There's one specific scene that crops up a couple of times where they're in the church and they're kneeling and it's very pretty because the movie's a very pretty movie. But it is very reminiscent of a similar scene in Chrono Trigger, a video game that I uh, enjoyed very much 20, 20 years ago where they you are also in a church with some nuns who are kneeling. And I don't know that anybody that, played, that made Chrono Trigger knew that movie, but I'd like to think that maybe they were inspired by this movie. I think you should uh, get at us on Twitter. Let us know. Trigger creators. Yeah, if you speak English and listen to uh, uh, weird, obscure British film podcasts, then get in contact with us. Hideo Kojima, I know you're out there. You have nothing to do with this, but maybe you want to listen to us. You like movies. We we have movies. Do you think... Okay, I want to ask about the the classroom scenes, too, because I don't know if you noticed this, but the way they're learning words Mm. is they're learning, like, a weapons... Like the names yeah. of weapons are like cannons, guns. Yeah, but but the kid, the kid that is like between six and eleven is teaching them this. Well, I think he's teaching them because I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, but I'm talking about the filmmakers. Like, yeah. do you think this is another kind of like weird thing where it's a British film and this is like kind of a Western idea of like, or do you think it's like um, kind of critiquing that? It's these kids training for the first India-Pakistan war. No, but do you think it's like, do you think it's like a critique that of... in 1947. ...of the way that they're spreading their, the British spread their influence, or do you think it's the filmmakers just being like, yeah, they learn about British things, war and stuff? It's probably a little bit of both. I would say that, yeah, I mean, because it would be the, the, the British would bring this idea of militarism and of, you know, uh, how you fight wars and weapons and all that to a culture, which they definitely did by, you know, going all around the world. So it makes sense that that would be integrated into the kind of schooling that they would give. It's like, well, we're the British, we do this, this is how we keep control of things, and these are our weapons of war we use to keep control of everybody. It's how we fought the Nazis. Although this is probably set in 1939, so... It was before that. It was before that. I mean, the Nazis were around, no. but they weren't interested in Nepal. No, they only sprang to life in 1939. <laughs> um, I do want to uh, play a scene here. So this is... Uh, this is a this is a scene early. I just want to just to give an idea of kind of how Mr. Dean is kind of crass. 
um, they're in church. I think it's Christmas, and they're singing. You know, they're singing songs. And Mr. Dean drunkenly walks in with the young general. They're not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be mm-hmm. literally just the nuns. And uh, this kind of moment happens. You'll you'll tell from the baritone singing of Mr. Dean. Yeah. example of like mr dean's really antagonizing these nuns for a while and so much so yeah he comes in he's clearly drunk um but he brings the young general and i kind of like the little touches that the young general is kind of amused by him yeah a little bit like he he really genuinely likes his voice and even says that like i i do love mr dean's voice though he doesn't understand how mr dean is like turning this into a mockery yeah he's well that's part of the problem he's very idealistic he's he's trying to turn into a mockery but the voice is actually so good that it it doesn't become a, it, it's not so far as to become a mockery almost yeah but he's, he's definitely like singing over oh everyone. yeah he's definitely over over enunciating and really getting into it so we I mean, really we really should get into the last like third of this movie the last quarter of this movie i guess mm-hmm. where ruth is you know it's all it's mostly about sister ruth yeah and um so the thing about sister ruth have you noticed that i i feel like i'm watching this movie and it felt like she was playing like a like, like it could have been a judy greer character like that, I just kept seeing Judy Greer in this role, <laughs> for some reason. And there's something about her that if they remade this movie, she would be who I would cast as Sister Ruth. Really? Yeah, I love um, Judy Greer. I thought of now, and I haven't even. This is weird for me to say because I haven't even seen the movie, but I've seen enough clips of it. I thought of like whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. With like Betty Davis and Joan yeah, Crawford, kind of that over, over the top, over the top kind of uh, horror movie. That I mean, it is a classic. It's I've never seen it. It's known to be a classic, but that's the kind of the style of acting that I was uh, that it made me think of. But so Ruth, as she's losing her mind, this is the first time the lighting really changes mm. because she's sitting in her uh, in her room. And, like, the room is, like, orange. Like, there's oh, some deep orange lighting. The sunset. Yeah, it's beautiful. and But it's also, like, really sinister. And it seems almost a little bit out of place with the rest of the movie. Only because there I, hasn't been anything like that into the movie at this point. Well, that's why I think it kind of works, though. Yeah. I mean, oh, no, it's it does. Kinda, it's, it's a very much, like, a change. Mm. Like, okay, we're going in a completely different direction Like, it almost now. becomes more realistic. Like, the lighting in that scene seems more realistic than lighting in the rest of the movie, to my eyes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is where she really starts to become, like, you know, freaked out and paranoid. Uh, Joseph, the l- the young boy translator, mm-hmm. comes in and gives her, like, a glass of milk from Cloda. Yeah. And when she finds out it's from Cloda, <laughs> she takes it and dumps it outside. Like, she thinks Cloda is going to, like, poison her or yeah. something. Yeah. Like, that's the level. That's the level of paranoia she's at, that she, she thinks a nun is going to poison her. Right. So, would I be so wrong, Jason, at this point at... Uh, 
making the assumption that a lot of horror movies have borrowed from this movie. Oh, absolutely. Because I think this last chunk, yeah, it's very like the close up of her eyes, mm-hmm. when, like the really close close up. Like it reminds me of like Italian like uh, exploit yeah. exploitation movie or something, no, like if, zombie or something. If, if this movie were made today, it would be a straight horror movie. Like, oh yeah, no question, there would be. It kind of is. It is because it kind of builds to that. It like, does because there's a. I mean, I've seen a lot of horror movies where the first hour and like sometimes the first hour and like twenty minutes is not horror, mm-hmm. but it's slowly and then the last twenty minutes is just terrifying. Yeah. And that's kind of what this is. This, this is definitely a proto version of, say, those movies for sure. And, and I uh, mean, this movie inspired Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact because he loved Powell and Pressburger. Yeah. And I don't know if I can like spot out stuff exactly that Scorsese would have taken, but I'm sure there's lots in here. We'll probably see more when we go through, especially when we get to Peeping Tom. Yeah. Because that's one of his biggest influences. Um. But yeah, it's it is it is like a modern. There's a lot of modern horror influences here. I wonder if uh, the maker, filmmakers of The Bridge on the River Kwai uh, used her run through the uh, forest to inspire uh, Shears' journey through the jungle. Gotta run through the jungle. Down, 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 down. Gotta run through the jungle. Down, 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 down. Probably. Let's ask David Lean. Uh, we will. I'll consult my David Lean book. Uh, I'm right here. Uh, no, it didn't. Thank you, Mr. Lean. Uh, he left very quickly. Yeah, he, he for his age, he's very agile. He's, he, like, hop, skip, and a jump? I know. Wow. And then, whoa, heels. whoa, he has a rocket shoe? <laughs> wow. Just one rocket shoe. He must be in the Illuminati. Wow. Oh, there he goes off with his friends. Bye, Elvis. Bye. Do you think the, do you think the mushrooms have worn off yet, Brennan? <laughs> I really hope that's not... <laughs> I hope I just smoked weed. I mean, what? <laughs> it's legal. Shut up. Um, so, as Ruth is kind of having her breakdown, we also see, like, the first time that Clota really opens up. Hmm. And, because we've seen flashbacks, but that's only kind of been inside her head. She's had little flashbacks to when she was younger, she was in love, but she's not talking to anybody about that. This is, there's a scene here, though, where she tells Mr. Dean, like, all about why she became a nun. Yeah. As she was going to get married, she wanted to get married, but that guy had no intention of marrying her, because her, his name was... Con. And he wanted to move to America with his uncle or something, yeah. so she was not down for that. She was not down. Well, he didn't even want to take her. Yeah. So Asshole. yeah, I think she was just so ashamed that the only thing she could do was just you know do the most opposite thing possible. Suicide's out, so it's joining a convent. Nineteen forty-seven suicide wasn't hot then. No. Uh, we're not talking about nineteen seventy-four. Actually, was suicide was number one on the Billboard charts <laughs> by the band uh, Whip It. Sure. The band named Whip It. Yeah. Yep. The Devo then made their song based off of that. This is going off the rails. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she opens up to Dean. She opens up about everything. And mm. um, it's and she also kind of alludes to the fact that kind of every man she meets kind of reminds her of Khan. Like, she even says the young general. Mm. Like, because he's someone that could just come and go. Like, he, go, he, he wants to do this. He wants to, like, study. And then suddenly he sees this girl. Oh, I'll just run off with her. And then later in the movie, he comes back and asks for forgiveness. Like yeah. he's very much like she. Kind of, I think she kind of envies him in a way, and and maybe recognizes that the con was the same. Yeah, he just did whatever he wanted to fucking do. Basically, 
I mean, then we get to the murder scene. Mm. That's a very, uh, that's a very good, they did a very good job with that. Who, who am I? Yeah, they did a pretty good job, Powell and Pressburger. Uh, <laughs> they not were, bad. They're all right. They, I give it a B plus. This really passed the test this time. Yeah, it passes the Bechdel test, right? Actually, you know what? This movie does pass <laughs> the does Bechdel pass test. It does pass the Bechdel test, yeah. Uh, <laughs> even, even though a lot of it is about a man, it's not all about a man. No, it doesn't, it does not pass the race Bechdel test, no, though. not at all. <laughs> if that is a thing. We talked about the colors. Another little thing I noticed is like Clota's white habit is actually getting dirtier at the end mm. of the movie. So no. I, mean, I mean, she was there for you know like six months or something. Well, no, I don't think it's just that though. I think everything is very carefully planned in this movie. I mean, yes, but also she's a nun and they're dirty. They're Stop looking dirty. at everything practically. They're real dirty, them nuns. They're always getting their hands dirty. Uh, you talked about the last shot when the palace is kind of, the clouds are covering it up. Yeah. That, that's very, like, dreamlike, too, oh, yeah. right? it was really cool. It's like, it kind, of, it kind of fades into the, it fades into the mist like it's Brigadoon. Exactly. And then, what happens at the end? The nuns leave, and as Mr. Dean said earlier in the movie, like, jokingly, like, oh, I give you to the rains break. Yeah. As soon as it starts soon raining. As, they're ra- uh, as soon as they're on the road, it just opens up. It just starts raining. The and, end. The end. And, uh, I'm sure you, you know the trivia about that A shot. production... Of the archers. <laughs> you know that trivia about that shot? No, I don't, but why don't you say a So, as I understand, they actually had another shot planned that was going to end the movie. <gasps> yes, go ahead. Um, I don't know. I, I, it may have been a conversation between it's, Sister Clota and Sister Mother Superior. Yeah, it's it's her going back yeah. and kind of talking to her about what happened, yeah. which is very anticlimactic. Yeah. So, that, that was their plan, but, but then they went and they filmed this scene, and he got that shot of the rain coming down on the plants and stuff with the caravan in the background, and... It was just, I guess he was so blown away by that shot, he's like, we're not even filming that other scene because this is how the movie ends. Um, it might have been filmed, though. Oh, maybe? Yeah, the, the, apparently some people said, like, they, they, it's very likely that it wasn't, mm. but there's some people that claim that there's a print of it somewhere. Well, and, if it, it ever pops up, we'll see, but as far as we know... If it ever pops up, we will do that on the next episode. We'll review that entire, specifically. Just that. It will be an hour and a half. Yep. We'll break it down frame by frame. <laughs> Oh, man. So before I get into the next section, which, you know, we're going to talk about the awards, uh, kind of what critics said, and then our thoughts at the very end, do you have anything else you wanted to mention from the film? Uh, just a lot of good lighting, a lot of nice colors, and the moral of the story that even nuns can fight over rugged men. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the uh, the Oscars. Ooh! It does win two Oscars. Oh! And it won for things that I'm glad it won for. How many did it get nominated for? Uh, just the two just that the it two. won. Just the two. So, uh, two for two. 100% yeah. hit rate. So, it wins for Best Art Direction. Okay, absolutely. And Best Cinematography. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it should have won for. Didn't, I would... didn't air those during the commercials, did they? <laughs> Actually, the... the... Fun, fun fact, uh, anyone listening... Well, I guess the Oscars have already happened. Probably. <laughs> so, never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, they they totally aired the whole telecast. Oh, okay. They're they're going or they they have. Man, wait, when did the Oscars future, happen? This future recording is fucking me up. Wait, when? Who's they're, okay? As of this recording, they're happening in like f- five days or something. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Or seven days, I guess. Time time is a weird thing that doesn't flow properly. Time is a time. construct. Time 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 is on my side. Time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. Douglas Adams. So, <laughs> uh, so like I said, uh, we talked. I talked a little bit about how this had a, uh, a influence on Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, 
actually, apparently there were a few specific things that he took. So there's uh, the extreme close-ups of the nun, like of uh, Sister Ruth on her eyes. Apparently, uh, the inspiration for uh, Tom Cruise's character around the pool table in the movie The Color of Money. Hmm. Yeah, so, like, yeah. There's a lot of a... shots that kind of mirror that. Uh, Martin Scorsese has also said this film is one of the earliest uh, quote-unquote erotic films. Mm-hmm. The last quarter of the movie, especially. Yeah. As one of his favorites as a boy. And he stated that one of the greatest experiences he has had with film is viewing Black Narcissus projected on a massive screen at the Directors Guild in 1983. Ooh. Uh, in Michael Powell's own view, this was the most erotic film he ever made. <laughs> uh, and he said, this is his quote, Michael Powell talking about the movie. He said, It is all done by suggestion, but eroticism is in every frame and image from beginning to end. It is a film full of wonderful performances and passion just below the surface, which finally at the end of the film erupts. So his thing is like, it is an erotic film. But it's underneath the surface. Ooh, it erupts. Yeah. There's no, like, there's no nuns walking around with, like, their boobs out. I mean, that's kind of what I was hoping for. But then again, I knew it was 1947 in Britain, so... This is not Clockwork Orange. No. (laughs) Okay, so there's a writer named George Perry uh, who said Archer's Films, which is not the television show, Mm -hmm. the Archer's was the, if anyone doesn't know, the Archer's was the name for Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger's collaborations. They just called themselves the Archer's. So whenever you see... The Archers, you know you're watching a Powell and Pressburger movie. Uh, but right anyway, writer George Perry says, The location photography and Technicolor by Jack Cardiff in Black Narcissus was a great deal better than the story mm-hmm. and lifted the film above the threatening banality. So this guy is kind of a mixed thing. He thinks the story is a little uh, banal, like dull. Yeah. Um, but he's praising you know, the cinematography. In contrast, though, the, there's a critic named Ian Christie, uh, in the, and, I, and wrote in the 1980s that unusually for a British film from the emotionally frozen 40s, the <laughs> melodrama works so well it almost seems as if Powell and Pressburger survived the slings and barbs of contemporary criticism to find their ideal audience in the 1980s. Hmm. So this is a movie apparently that a lot of people, people in the 80s felt held up fairly well. Yeah. Because I guess they were still doing brownface in the 80s. <laughs> well, they were. Soul Man, see Thomas Howell. Come on. Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, that movie is pretty offensive, but I think it's also <laughs> kind of about brown face yeah. like, and silver like, streak was that the one is that is it brown face in that one there's one where gene gene kelly dresses up in, in gene wilder face. gene wilder not gene kelly Who the fuck is oh gene, gene kelly he's singing in the rain oh. <laughs> is, that, is that gene kelly i think that's gene kelly yeah it's gene kelly jason final thoughts black narcissist uh, basically what i could say about this movie is the same thing i can say about a lot of video games i've played over the years where maybe the game's not so not exactly for me but man what a what an beautiful ride what a beautiful thing like this is a a visually sumptuous uh impressive movie the three strip technicolor is vivid it is it is it is a snack with every frame for your eyes and it's very much uh akin to uh henry v in that yes. regard oh absolutely just beautiful yeah. absolutely although i'm not gonna lie mainly because of the dialogue but i had much easier time yeah well exactly i'll give you that henry i'll give you that but again it's a movie about nuns and outside of like her, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kimberly, Kimberly Fuckface, the one that played Sister uh, Ruth. Kathleen Byron? Kathleen Byron, that's the one. Outside of her at the end of the movie, which was awesome, I was just like kind of meh with most of it. But goddamn, watch this movie because it's beautiful. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little bit more positive. Go. go uh, I'm going to say, well, first of all, this is number 44. It's our first Powell and Pressburger film. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, God Save the Queen. <laughs> that's the second time I've done that. 
Um, so while I don't think that we're going to do three other movies that they made together, yeah. we're going to do another movie that Michael Powell made by himself. I don't think this is going to end up being my favorite of the films that they do, or the, mm. their collaborations, but I do appreciate and enjoy like a great deal of it. Uh, the movie is gorgeous to look at as we talked about. Ooh, my goodness, yes. The acting's very strong, honestly. Like, oh, yeah. For a movie from 1947, the, you... A lot of times you get like a little bit more melodramatic acting, especially you start you go back more and more because you get a lot of Broadway actors and stage actors. Outside, outside of Ruth, near the end, people are pretty subtle for the most part. Yeah, I'd say Deborah Kerr it should be Deborah Kerr should be praised a lot because she basically just has to act with her face. Like mm-hmm. she doesn't, she, she's covered from head to toe, so she has to do a lot of acting just in her face, and which you know could lend itself to being over the top. Yeah, but she definitely handles it well. Um. Uh, Kathleen Byron, especially in the last third of the movie, but I think she's fantastic throughout. Mm-hmm. Film is full of symbolism, so I would say it's a strong entry on the list of the BFI Top 100. Absolutely, you can't go wrong with it. And a good introduction to the Archers sure. for us. Yes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time. It's time. It's time. It's Vader time. time. Vader time. Here we go. Brendan's going to roll them. What am I doing, Jason? You're rolling dice. This is the point of the podcast where we do what? We roll some dice, and when we roll those dice, we get a number. And when we get that number, we look on a rubric containing the entire top 100 BFI list. And if we haven't seen the movie, we watch the number of movie that corresponds with the number that is on the dice. And if we have seen the movie, we do it anyway. We do it, yes. We watch it again. And, oh, I don't want to watch The English Patient again. God damn it, Please don't let me watch The English Patient again. Six episodes of The English Patient in a row. Uh, All right, well, Jason, once you get that list up, that BFI Top 100 list, curated in 1999 while I stall for time talking about nonsense, I am going to roll these dice, and we are going to see what fucking happens. So here we go. Please not Lawrence of Arabia. Not yet. I'm not ready. 42. Ooh, so two down from Black Narcissus. 42 is going to be The Madness of King George, 1994 Nicholas Hinter film. Starring uh, a guy who I know his name is uh, (laughs) Nigel Hawthorne. Okay. The Madness of King George is This is going to be a super British, British movie. 1994. So we've gone up quite a bit. Absolutely. We're, we're not, we're not into a, the modern era. Not on the list, but we've gone up quite a bit in years. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So this, I'm, I'm looking forward to this because I, I love American history and I always enjoy the stories of the American Revolution and George III was the king uh, during the American Revolution, but I don't really know what happened to him afterwards and I guess he went a little crazy, so we'll see. I know nothing about this movie. Yeah. Other than it's a movie called The Madness of King George. And I believe Nigel Hawthorne may have won an Academy Award for it. Okay. Well, right. we'll get into it. We'll get into it next week. But for now, for now, Jason. Yes. God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screening country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Get thee to a nunnery. <gasps> well, I guess it would be nice.
I'm Ashley. And I'm Justine. And And we we make make up the Cutaways Cutaways Podcast. We're watching the good, the bad, and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre. So far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week. Brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye! It's time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love good movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies with a one last plot holes a gratuitous boobies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven at eilfm.podbean.com. We're happy to have you with us this evening and want you to enjoy every minute of your stay here. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! Are you ready to enter the sci-fi double feature drive-in? Every month we hold a special double feature with a very interesting theme thought up by your host, the conspiracy-loving Elisa, and yours truly, Jarrett the Kaiju Man Wegelin. We discuss giant monsters, little monsters, genetic abominations, robots gone awry, aliens coming to Earth, cryptids, and anything in between. So join us at the sci-fi double feature drive-in podcast every first and third Thursday of the month. And don't forget to stop by our snack bar first.